Okay. Uh, good morning, everybody, and uh, welcome to this session entitled An Actuary in the Damages Space. Uh, my name is Wim Lewis, and I'll be chairing the session. Um, so, the field we're dealing with is one that is quite prone to, um, or potentially quite prone to, ethical issues like the one faced by the expert in, in the, the cartoon. Um, often, experts or actuaries might experience pressure from their clients to produce a report that's favorable to, their, to the plaintiff or to the defendant. And in general, it's the, the idea is to, to try and remain impartial in a field that's fairly um, adversarial in nature. So today, uh, the, the main discussion will be a panel discussion, and the bulk of the time will be spent uh, doing that. But before we get to that, I'd like to put into context, take a few minutes to put into context the, the position of the damages actually and also to provide some background and feedback on the work that the Damages Committee has been doing in this area. Uh, following that, we'll move on to the panel discussion. Um, the idea is to give a, a fairly bird's eye view and a practical view of the Damages Actuary and the Damages Attorney that operates in this field. Uh, and also to, to maybe compare and contrast that to the various other roles of actuaries and attorneys, and also to, to comment on the various um, conflicts of interest and eth ethical issues that, that can arise. Uh, there will be a reasonable, reasonably long uh, uh, part of the session uh, allocated to questions and answers, so I would like to encourage you to actively participate towards the end, and, and please ask the panel anything that you might like to know. So the damages field is essentially classified as what is become known in the last couple of years as, a, as wider fields, although actuaries have been involved in this field in, in South Africa since at least the 1970s, as far as I can tell. Initially, it's been a handful of pioneering actuaries that, that, has, been, uh, that has participated in this area, but over the years, a few more have joined the ranks, but it's still a fairly small area of specialization. I would estimate that maybe 35, maybe 40 actuaries are active in the field uh, today. So, the first thing that I would like to say is that um, when, uh, when there's a claim for damages, the, the plaintiff might have various heads of claim. The actuary is normally just involved in what is called uh, the special damages or damages that can be obje objectively quantified. So an example might be somebody, someone that was in an accident, suffered a loss of earnings, or somebody that might be, uh, have to be compensated for future medical expenses. All these are objectively quantifiable um, awards. Uh, other possibilities or other damages awards that, that can be applicable might be damages for pain and suffering, which you can understand is, is quite subjective. Or occasionally even the defendant might be uh, given a, a, punitive, uh, a punitive damages award might be uh, raised against the, the defendant where there was an ex uh, maybe a very offensive action taken and it's aimed at discouraging similar behavior in future. Again, that's a, a matter for court decision um, and a fairly subjective one at that. Uh, whenever there was a potentially wrongful act and there's litigation that happens, there's both a plaintiff side and a defendant side. And typically, both sides would appoint their own experts, including actuaries. Um, 
Occasionally, you might find that the plaintiff and the defendant agree to use the same actuary, but that is not the norm. Um, as far as formal education is concerned, there's very little uh, formal reading or education uh, material available for actuaries in this field. It's inherently a practical field. It's learned by doing. Um, experience counts for a lot in the field, and it's best obtained by working together with an experienced actuary um, to, to get to the point of being self-sufficient. Um, importantly, this is not a statutory role, but it's also not a role that's specifically reserved for actuaries. Uh, the court will accept evidence from anybody that it, ex that it deems to be an expert. Having said that, though, in South Africa, the courts have generally put a lot of weight on, the, on, on actuarial ev evidence in, in the past. Up to date, there's been very little regulation or professional guidance for act actuaries acting in the field. Um, I'll comment a bit later on the progress that has been made in this regard, but that has been the, 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 the status quo up to now. From a legal perspective, the field is governed by what is known common law, the common law, which essentially is the law laid down or established by uh, these, the outcomes of historic rulings. The, that's not to say that there isn't acts and legislation that needs to be taken into account by act, actuaries and attorneys operating in the field, but predominantly that is the key structural uh, legislative uh, consideration for uh, practitioners in the field. So whenever there's litigation, there's the possibility that the, the actuary or any other expert might have to appear as an, as an expert witness, and the fundal, fundamental duty of that expert is to the court, to assist the court in determining fair compensation. In practice though, as I mentioned before, the, the attorney or any other expert is appointed by a client, either the plaintiff or the defendant. That client might have an overriding objective of trying to settle the claim, and the, 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 the actually or any other expert also has a, a role to play in assisting the client in, in achieving that objective. So part of our panel discussion will be focusing on those last two points and discussing the potential for conflicts of interest and ethical issues that can arise uh, as a result of those two duties or roles. The Damages and, uh, Damages and Compensation Committee was established in July uh, of last year. Uh, prior to that, there was a more informal damages forum in place. The, the current committee is uh, divided into four subcommittees that uh, meet regularly. The four subcommittees respectively deal with professional guidance, uh, research, CPD and awareness, as well as legal updates. One of the main aims of the committee was to establish an actual practice notes for, to assist actuaries uh, operating in the field. The, uh, the practice note has been circulated, a draft practice note has been circulated for, for comment to the profession, which uh, happened in the last, I think, two or three months. And the committee is currently putting the finishing touches on uh, finalizing the, uh, the, the practice note. And I would estimate that by maybe early, of, early 2016, we'll, we'll gain the necessary approval from the Professional Matters Board, and it will become a recommended practice. Uh, because this is not a statutory role, it will be recommended practice, as I said. Uh, however, the, the, the guidance note provides guidance to those signing off on these reports, uh, dealing with such matches, matters as the recommended competence and experience requirements, 
for signatories to reports, um, setting some the background of uh, the legislation, legislative legislative uh, structure that that the, uh, the actually operates in when when dealing with these types of matters. Minimum requirements for the contents of reports. Um, there's also a few sections on uh, the various aspects to take into account when setting the various um, assumptions required and deciding on, on, on methodologies. And lastly, there are sections in the, the guidance note that uh, assists or provides guidance to actuaries that, that might have to act as expert witnesses and also deals with other professional issues that might arise, for instance, dealing with, with other um, experts um, while involved in, in matters such as these. Right, so that, that is the, the introductory comments from my side. I'd now like to move on to our panel discussion. So today on the panel we've got two actuaries and, and one attorney. Um, we're going to structure the discussion through two uh, main topics that I'll discuss or introduce at a, at a later stage. I would estimate that the discussion of those two topics might take maybe 20 or 25 minutes, which will leave a, a good bulk of the time for further discussion and questions from the audience. So I would, I would definitely like you to, uh, to encourage you to, to think of some questions while the discussion is taking place and to engage with the, the panel towards the end. Right, so on our panel today we've got Ayanda Nondwara. He's a senior associate and attorney at Hogan Lowell's. Uh, Ayanda specializes in commercial and insurance litigation with, spe uh, with specific reference to uh, personal injury claims, uh, director's liability, product liability, professional indemnity claims, and so forth. He served a number of clients, both in the public and the private sector, uh, amongst them the Road Accident Fund and the Attorney's Insurance Indemnity Fund. Second on the panel, we've got Tommy Dubell, sporting a new look. Uh, Tommy is an actuary and director at Argent Actuarial Solutions. Um, he's uh, worked in the pensions and life insurance industries in both South Africa, uh, in South Africa, the UK, and also the rest of Africa. Tommy is a statutory evaluator and serves as consulting actuary to a number of retirement funds. He's also a past chairman of the Retirement Matters Committee. Uh, Tommy uh, heads the damages department at Argent and he also has regularly acted as expert witness in pensions matters and personal injury matters. Uh, last but not least, we've got Willem Bosov. Uh, Willem is also an actuary uh, with 15 years experience. His past roles involved uh, product development roles with Momentum and Momentum International and he, he's also had a stint at a private equity firm. Uh, Willem joined Monroe Consulting Actuaries in 2013 where he specializes in uh, damages claims and also follows his passion for social entrepreneurship and startup ventures. Right, so I'd like to uh, move on to the panel discussion now and introduce our first topic. Um, so the, the first topic for me is an introductory topic that, that hopefully will set the scene for further discussions. And I'd like to ask the panel to, to provide us with their, their views on the role and the duties, the responsibilities of the, the damages actuary or the damages attorney as it may be. 
Um, give us a sense of what it's like to practice in this area, what are the various skills required, the duties, the principles to take into account and so forth. And also where relevant, maybe contrast and compare it a bit to some of the other more traditional roles that some of you will be more familiar with. Right, so Ayanda, if I can start with you. Thanks. Thanks, Vim. Uh, can you hear me, guys? All right. As Vim just indicated, I'm a senior associate Hogan Lovers. Predominantly, my practice is dependent-based. So when I say dependent-based, when there's a claim, the client will come to us and say, look, we've got this claim. Either they want to fight on the merits or the quantum of the claim. So if it's on the merits of the matter, obviously, the issue of quantification comes at a later stage. But predominantly, most of those are road accident matters. The merits are usually not in dispute. So the client will come to us and say, look, I got this claim, but they're claiming 5 million. I want to pay 1.5. How can you assist? So essentially, what we do, as I said, the damages are defendant's attorney. We try to actually resist the claim to pay as less as possible uh, to, the, to, to the claimant. On the converse, if you are playing to attorney in that space, you try to maximize the best outcome for your client. Because in this space, normally the victims are, are the laymen in the street. So they don't have money for litigation actually to prosecute their claim. So they'll go to an attorney actually and approach him to prosecute the claim on their behalf. In view of fact that they don't have enough money, they'll actually do the matter on a contingent basis, meaning that you don't pay the money upfront, but you pay at the outcome of the result. So as an attorney, being the businessman they are, they will try to get the best outcome for it. The more compensation, the more money they get out of their contingency in the matter. So you've got those two tensions, actually, that are at play. So by, by, its, very, by its very, very nature, litigation is, is adversary in nature. So you've got a, a plaintiff and also the, the defendant at the same time. But still, as an attorney, we've got ethical duties towards um, the society, also, also to, the, to, to the law society as well. So the, the core duty that we have as, as an attorney, we must act ethically, professionally, and not mislead the court. So those are the, two, those are the three important duties, actually, of an attorney. So when you get a claim, you, as a, as a, a plaintiff's attorney, you actually try to prosecute it in an ethical, in a professional, and also in a, not in a fraudulent manner. At the same time, as a defense attorney, the same duties apply to us as well. So as I said, we got those ethical duties that we need to adhere to when we're dealing with this kind of, of, of claims. Now, the purpose of damages as well is that, as I said to you, is, is trying to obtain the right compensation for the, for the victim himself, him or herself. Now, in, in doing that, as Vim uh, indicated, both parties will brief uh, respective experts to, in order to quantify the, the claim. And one of those experts that we brief at the later stage, which is, is an actuary, actually, the actuary will help us to, to, to compute the claim. So you will brief a primary experts to, to indicate, for example, if it's, it's a head injury, the nature of the injury, head injury, the sequela thereof, and then if you bring other experts as well, like an occupational therapist and industrial psychologist, should say, look, this person, in view of the sequela, can he work or not? If he can't work, now, what is the compensation is? That's when actually now we, we become the issue of the actuary. Is they say, look, there is a factual basis to say this person is compromised. Now, how do we put that in numbers? Then the actuary comes there actually to, to punch in the numbers. Now, in practice, what usually happens, um, let's, say, let's say, legally speaking, as, as an attorney as well, you must give a very um, factual information to an actuary. The information must be based 
on documentary information or also from oral evidence that we have procured in assessing the claim itself. So that information should be conveyed to the actuary. So the actuary will have the, the expert evidence on one hand and also have the oral evidence, meaning from the plaintiff or depending or other witnesses, relative and so forth, you know what I mean? Now the actuary will have that information at their disposal. So the attorney will have that information at their disposal to, and must convey that information to the actuary. But no, what normally happens in practice, you know what I mean? Some attorneys, which is probably trying to do it for the best outcome of the client, they will leave certain information out, obviously, to get, try to get the best outcome of, 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 the, of, of, of the claiming. I'll just give you an example, you know what I mean? Let's say, using my, uh, my example that I said, the person's got a head injury, um, now, the only reason the person is not working is because he's waiting for the outcome of the claim. So what will normally happen, the attorney will, will do, will convey the information to the actuary, but wouldn't indicate this person actually is working for a period of time. So the information is not actually conveyed to the actuary, but now it's creating actually a miscontrolled position on, on the actual status of, of the claim in itself. Equally as well, you, on the defendant side as well, you get information. That information sometimes will be favorable to the plaintiff, but that information you won't convey to the actuary because you want to pay as less as possible. But as I said to you, those are the ethical and actual issues that we need to take into account. But our strategy as a firm and also our belief, look, look we are brief to brief the best outcome of the client. Equally, before we put our client as well, we are also members of the society. And also, we are also members of the law society. Therefore, we must convey information ultimately that's going to be ethical, professional, and reliable, and accurate at the same, at the same time. So those are, those are the things actually that, that come the issue of at, at play. I think I've just touched that. Okay. Thanks, Ayanda. Tommy? Thanks, Vim. Yes. Um, now it comes to the actuary. What are our roles? Now, Ayanda mentioned we basically there to quantify the loss look at um, and, and advise the court as to what, what let's look at a road, a road accident fund, well, that's the majority of type of calculations that we do. Um, what would a person have earned during his lifetime um, if he had passed away, for example, and apportion that to the people that are remained behind and that we should have, would have shared in that income. So basically it's a sim relatively simple actuarial calculation. Um, the problem there is, is uh, there's a, we mentioned the lack of regulation and data. So, um, in terms of what we do, calculate the calculate the potential loss. But um, in contrasting that against the other areas that actuaries are involved in, I think we can highlight a few, and I think that will lead to some point of discussions as well. Um, regulation is an important one. We mentioned there's not much formal regulation um, for actuaries working in this space. Um, there's post court rulings that one needs to be aware of, um, and that means there's a long learning curve. You know, you can't just jump into this, start doing your things, and I've, I think all of us working here have seen work of actuaries that's been done with a fantastic actual background and training, but that does not make sense at all within the context of how this work should be done. Um, like discount rates, and people can assume, well, this person would put the money in a money market account, that would be an investment return that you can project, um, or you would invest a high. Um, I've seen some calculations where person, people have uh, assumed very high equity type returns, very suitable for many calculations that we do, but within the context of the framework that this field has developed in, um, it probably not stand up in court if you're challenged on that. So um, we've got to learn from our colleagues, and I 
personally, I can just say that I've always just experienced very much cooperation in terms of people getting us up to speed. And that's part of the professionalism that I'll end up with. You know, um, as part of the profession, we need to support each other as well. You know, you can't just leave another actuary to do stupid things. It damages the reputation that we that we are held in, at the, in, in which regard we are held in at the courts. Um, guidance have mentioned that we've got some progress in that. Um, in the past, there's also been some good guidance done by Robert Koch in the two theses that he's, that he's written. That's a very um, good source of information. Um, and that basically set the standard, I think, for definitely road accident fund work that has been done in this country. And his handbook um, with tables and uh, a bunch of other information that he sets out there is basically a guideline that's accepted by the courts over many years, and it's good to make reference to that. So in the absence of guidance, there's that, there's a few damages, uh, literally um, a few books that we can also reference at. But um, use that because in the end, if you're at court and you're challenged, you have to have something that you base your um, uh, your calculations on, other than the just I'm an actuary and I qualify through the UK Institute of Actuaries, you know, it's not going to work here. We mentioned that you needn't even be an actuary, but if you are an actuary, I expect your um, word would weigh a bit more than somebody who's not qualified, so that's just that basic thing. Um, a few other differences, the speed of calculations also um, are different from other, other lines of work. You know, in, we, I work in pensions uh, to a large extent, and there we get evaluation, and we just have to finish within a year. You know, before the, after, after the financial year end, we've got a year to do it. So the time pressure is obviously much different with a case that's currently in court. The people are calling you. They're sitting. Um, they've stood down the case for um, half an hour to get the actuary to do a calculation. So there's a much different time pressure. And we had the sessions on ethics and how do you make decisions when you're uh, doing something in haste. You know, it's something we need to be cognizant of. Um, data is often much less clear, often very sparse. We might touch upon that. I'll leave something for Willem, but you know, what do you do if data is incomplete? Do you search, search for it, want to have yeah, accurate and complete data, or do you work with what you have? And again, ethical and some professional um, issues that come into play there. Interaction with other, other actuaries, also, I think, a, a positive, but it can be negative. You know, it's often adversarial in nature. You know, we've got different results. But I must say, um, to that extent, I quite enjoy this space because it gives us a chance to speak to other actuaries, even though we differ. Often it's just the assumptions that we use, not the assumptions really, the data that we used were different. We've got different salary information that we used, and it's very rare that we get really differences in um, our calculations if we, well, in the results if we use the same input data. So in a sense, it's not that adversarial, and um, it's, it's something that I think we can, in collaborating a bit closer together, really raise the profile of actuaries um, or uh, not seem as if we each have our own different calculator that spits out different answers depending on who, is, who instructs us. Um, just a practical issue, uh, payment for services, you know, how do you get paid? Um, it's, uh, we, we do want to get paid for this work um, and in normal work, you know, you send a bill to the corporate or the pension fund that you did the work for, and they'll pay you within a certain amount of time, within a month normally. In this work, some some attorneys do pay you as a, and they pay some of the experts at the end of the month after the bill was submitted. Many um, would want you to follow um, the the court, so eventually, when that case is settled and sent for the assessment of the of the costs, then you can get payment once they get paid. 
some attorneys would then even not pay you, <laughs> and uh, you have to drag it out of them. Um, so there's some other skills that may be involved in collection of fees. Um, the, 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 the guys with the thick arms <laughs> to send them around. But um, that, that, and it's a practical issue as well, you know, because you've got, if you submit an invoice at the end of the month or after two months, you've got to pay VAT on that invoice. You're out of pocket, and that money will only come in after six months a year. Um, so there's some issues there that's relevant. Um, on professionalism, I touched on that, you know, so we need to be uh, ensure that we do protect the profession. It's not a, a closed um, uh, room that we just go and idle and come out with one answer. We need to protect the profession in the way that we act and not be um, uh, d damaging the reputation of other actuaries in front of attorneys to say, well, that guy doesn't know what he's doing. You know, we are all actuaries and we need to um, uphold the profession. But in that sense, I think it's the same in, in all, all areas of field. And the last one that I've got is just to say that, you know, there's often, we talk about the road accident fund workers a lot, but um, there's also other damages claims that we that people ask us to get involved in because I know these actuaries know everything. You know, so, um, we've done calculations where businesses went bust. You know, something happened, a business guy didn't get a contract for some other reason. He would have got that the contract and made some money out of it. So he goes to court and say, well, if I had this contract, this is what I would have earned. And even in that sense, you know, I often refer people to auditors and say, well, that they're better qualified to do that. But um, actuaries do have a sense of looking to the future especially, but also I think a holistic view to see what is a fair settlement and what, what would have happened. Um, I, th I think we didn't, shouldn't be ashamed of using our expertise, even if it's a bit more on the past side rather, rather than the future. But thanks, Tom. Thanks, Tommy. There was, there was a comprehensive overview, so hopefully there's still some stuff for Willem to say, but maybe just give us your, your overview from, for a minute or two, and then we can move on to the next topic. Thanks. Um, yes, Tommy did cover everything uh, rather comprehensively, so <laughs> I was thinking maybe I should tell a joke or something. Um, I'll, uh, I'll drill into just a couple of things that Tommy mentioned to give you guys a better feel for what we deal with. Uh, like Tommy mentioned, the calculations are super simple, actually, speaking. It's, it's most of the time a simple discounted cash flow calculation or an annuitization of future loss. Um, so in that respect, it, it's really easy. The tricky part comes in with the dynamics that you have to deal with. I think uh, talking about differences between actuaries uh, in the time that I've been involved, uh, often we, we sit with two actuarial reports that are vastly different in terms of the answers, and we get asked to do a joint minute to explain why the reports differ. And um, I think the only significant reason that we've ever found, actuarially speaking, is, is a difference in the discount rate that gives rise to a big difference in the answer. Uh, other than that, it's mostly the inputs. And often uh, you get the perception from guys that actuaries are these little black boxes and know-it-alls and they can solve every problem in the universe. And we'd like to keep it that way, although we, <laughs> we know it's not true. But often we have to explain to, to the guys involved that, listen, yeah, the, the actuaries can't fix this problem. You know, you need to sort out your inputs. So we might get a case for Pity from Burdas Dorp, um, who's a, a rugby player and he's played first team and he gets in an accident. and. That's the end of PT's rugby career now. Certainly, the expert that gets appointed by his uh, attorney uh, vouches for the fact that PT is very uh, talented, and he would most certainly have played for the Springboks, probably captain, and uh, he would have made millions. And uh, then on the defendant side, the 
the experts involved say, well, yeah, he was, he was a talented guy, but there's a lot of talented guys involved. And in rugby, you get injuries. So maybe he would have played a bit for Boerland and a game or two for province. And, and that probably would have been the extent of it. Now you have one report that, that calculated damages at 20 million rand and the other report at two and a half million rand. And the, the problem is not actuarial. It is, you know, what would Pity have done? <laughs> and uh, we, we certainly provide, you know, we can highlight the issues there, but we cannot solve them. Those are inputs. Uh, the other one relates to pressure, which is also interesting. Um, I know always when you have valuations runs in insurance companies and, and the likes of guys, you know, they think they know pressure, but uh, believe me, you don't. <laughs> it's um, when you have an absolutely hysterical attorney, apologies, Ayanda, on the other side of the line, you know, an hour before they do in court and they realize they omitted some significant piece of information that has to go into the calculation, you have very little scope to say to them, sorry, we can't do this. They insist that you do it. And in our experience, it's become very much a service game. Now, there's obviously a place where you have to draw the line professionally. We say, guys, sorry, you know, we, we simply can't do this. Um, but from a service perspective, we, we've had to, to gear our, our services to the client so that we can deal with those instances because they happen a lot. Where you literally have to go and recalculate uh, with an hour or an hour and a half's notice. Okay, thanks, Willem. Okay, thanks, guys. I'd like to move on to the second topic now, which really builds on everything that's been discussed up to now and already, in part, have been touched on. Um, so, the first statement I'd like to make, and perhaps the, the chair or the, the panel can maybe either agree or disagree with me, but the damages actually has a fundamental and ultimate duty to the court. Uh, to assist the court in establishing fair compensation. However, as we've learned from Ayanda, the, the plaintiff attorney, the defendant attorney, might have very different objectives in coming to a conclusion to a case, whether it's settlement or whether it's ultimate, uh, ultimately ends up in, in court. And that attorney will instruct the actuary, sometimes incompletely, Sometimes it's evident that uh, the, the attorney tries to manipulate figures. In part, the actuary needs to assist the, the, the attorney in, in achieving the objectives, but at the same time, there probably is a, a line where the, the attorney need, or the, the actuary needs to step in and say, well, this is perhaps not the best way to do it. So I'd like to invite the panel to maybe discuss a bit the potential duties of, of the actuary in, in both these roles. and where there can be conflicts and, and, and potential conflicts of interest. This time I'd like to start with Willem. Yes, there, there certainly is a, a conflict of interest. And um, as actuaries uh, guided by the profession, we, uh, we, we attempt to be ob objective, but because somebody pays your fees, you, you can claim objectivity as much as you like. You're never completely objective. Now, certain things you, um, it's clear there what the right answer is and, and you can stand your ground there. But because we, we often deal with calculations that look 20, 30, 40 years into the future, there's a lot of uncertain inputs, um, you know, things like discount rates that, that's not fixed. You know, you, you have to argue whether or not the rate you're using is correct. Um, there's certainly elements, you know, that, that, that weighs on the actuary in terms of, you know, bias that it can introduce. And I think there, as an actuary, you simply need to do your homework. Um, you need to be certain about what the correct assumptions are or the correct methodologies. 
and you need to be willing to apply it if you were sitting on the other side of the fence. I think that's a good test to, to keep yourself honest. Um, in terms of our relationship with, with the attorneys now, I have to vouch for the guys. Most of the attorneys are thoroughly a pro uh, professional, uh, but it is certainly the exceptions that, that makes this line of work a bit more exciting. We get some very exciting um, instances on our table. And the, it is interesting. I don't think there's a, a definite clear line for me as to where the actuary's responsibility ends and uh, in terms of um, commenting or making a decisions as to the legitimacy of the calculation and the inputs that we use. Currently what, what we do is if we see anything that looks a bit suspect in terms of the instruction, we will highlight that issue in the report very clearly. And we will say we do the instruction or the calculation based on the instruction and highlight the, the most important points in the, in the instruction. And then also note that other in normally what you'd expect to see in this calculation, but that is not in the instruction, or note that you know something you omit or something you add, what the impact is thereof. So that ultimately we act as a, uh, to assist the courts, and when the judge looks at this actual report, they need to understand you know what the number that you calculate represent, and what reservations you have about the calculation. Now there certainly is instances where you know the guys have crossed the line and they would like you to do the calculation. Now, maybe I can explain this by an example is we uh, had an attorney call us and he was very excited because he, he got a guy who's a taxi driver and he was in an accident and he's not going to have a claim against the road accident fund and it seems like he wouldn't be drive, able to drive his taxi in future. So he, he, he sent us the, the taxi driver's um, bank statements and based on the last three months statements he had income of 45,000 rand a month and he would like for us to calculate the, the loss of future income based on a 45,000 rand a month income. Uh, firstly, for a taxi driver, you know, that's pretty rich, and uh, I think a lot of guys would quit their jobs and become taxi drivers if that was the case. Now, we certainly know the bank statements does not tell the full story because there's expenses. We do not know the money that goes into the bank statement if it's all in respect of his taxi, taxi business. He might be running a shabin on the side. Uh, there's a million different permutations. And um, we ultimately got back to the attorney and said, sorry, we cannot do the calculation on that basis. He needs to get a forensic accountant involved and then they can do the forensic accounting side of it, show us what the real income is, and once we know what the income is, then we're quite happy to do the calculation. But there isn't clear guidance on where you draw that line. So as an actuary, I think you, you need to try and be an objective and certainly disclose everything you know about the case in your report if necessary. Oh, thanks for the agree. Um, I think the basic thing is we're we a calculator, and. Uh, People give us the inputs and we can give the result. Now that's, that's the basics of what we do. And I don't think we need to be private detectives in this instance to try and get into the, to the bottom of, of everything. Um, so in a sense, we serve our clients. If the instructing attorney is your client, or effectively they appoint you to do it, um, you have to do the calculation based on the information that's given. If something looks strange, you know, question it, of course. Um, but also keep in the back of your mind, you may end up in court explaining to a judge what you've done and in that sense you have to be certain that what you've done is correct and you didn't close your eyes to some things that, that, that you should have questioned at an earlier stage. So basically act professionally. I think we helped a lot there in the expert reports that we do get. Um, industrial psychologists, 
would discuss the inputs like Willem just talked about the rugby player. They would get to a common agreement in their joint minutes and we're going to work off that. that. Then that takes a lot of the data issues out of it. Similarly, if there's accountants involved, they can agree between different accountants what would the future progression of a business um, uh, a profit uh, have been and we can work off that. So as soon as you as soon as experts are involved, it becomes a lot more e a lot easier. Is if you get a very simple instruction, say this is the income, this is the um, age, basic information. We can do the calculation, um, but it may well be that you do a f you'll do a few recalculations afterwards as more information becomes available. Okay. Right. My view is much more <laughs> uh, complex than that. I think, strictly speaking, um, an actuary owes its duty to, to the court. I will tell you why I'm saying that. Normally, what happens in practice is that once you, when, when an attorney briefs an actuary, always that actuary is the client of the attorney. But once that report is submitted or filed at court, that actuary no longer becomes the client of the attorney. It becomes the witness of the court. So whatever he puts in his report must be sustainable in court, meaning it must be factual and must be legally sound. So I'm saying, strictly speaking, when actually preparing a report in practice, they should prepare a report keeping in mind that that report will be actually submitted at court and probably will be evident at a later stage. But what happened normally in practice, we also do it as well. We'll actually prepare two reports. One report will be for settlement purposes. One obviously will be the one that's going to court. It happens almost every time. But I think, strictly speaking, once an actuary prepares a report, it becomes the witness of the court, and the court are very, are very clear about this thing. There's a lot of case law and authority about the duty of an expert evidence. He's always, he's actually, he's, he's evidence to the court. He comes to, to court as a witness of a court to assist the court to come to a, a decision or a conclusion. Okay, so I'd like to th yeah, thank the panel for the, their views and insights. Um, I think that's, that's given the, the audience a, a fairly good view of, of, of the fairly grey area that, that we operate in. Um, there are no real correct or right answers in this field, but I guess your gut feel will, will normally be the biggest uh, deterrent or advisor in, in this case. I'd like to move on to uh, a question and discussion session now, so I'd like to invite questions or comments from the audience. I see Francois Hijo and, and Greg Whitaker. Um, Francois um, just wanted to know from the Sorry. panel um, if you, in terms of your calculation basis and your assumptions, if you were to get um, a calculation, to perform a calculation, would it be different if you were getting the instruction from the RAF versus getting the instruction from, from the plaintiff? I'm not talking about um, specific instructions. I'm talking about actuarial judgment. So sometimes you can do a calculation in a certain way, and there's sort of also some evidence that you can actually do it in a different way, and people agree to disagree on that. But would you as firms, or in your firms, when you do this in your personal capacity, sort of have a tendency to go for a certain methodology depending on who sort of asked you or we gave you the instruction to do the, do the, do the calculation? Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I'm glad you asked that question. Um, I saw Greg's hand going up, so I thought I'll grab your question and then <laughs> Tommy can handle Greg. <laughs> we we had recently a um, 
one of the biggest things it was the sweatment judgment and i think that fits nicely into the the scope of your question now for the audience just to try and briefly explain that is uh, most of the work we we do is for the road accident fund and the road accident fund introduced a cap on the amount of loss or in respect of the loss you can account for every year you might have heard there was this um, uh, international executive that was involved in a motorbicycle crash outside of Stellenbosch a few years ago and eventually lodged a claim for a billion rand against the fund. I think he got awarded 500 million and uh, the fund realized, well, this is just not sustainable. They need to, to cap the amount of loss in, in respect of each year's loss. So when you do the calculation, you basically look at each year's uh, loss suffered in the future and then they have to instruct it um, as to apply a cap to that. The problem is they didn't exactly specify how to do the cap in, in respect to the calculation. Now what emerged from that, and I'm not going to take sides on which way of calculating this is the right way, I just want to explain the dilemma, is uh, essentially you could project into the future the losses, then you could project the cap as well into the future at the inflation rate. You can apply the cap in the future, then discount that loss to the present, with uh, contingencies and mortality and arrive at the answer. The other way to do that is to project the losses into the future, apply the discount rate and contingencies mortality, oh, sorry, not contingencies, but mortality, and then apply the cap. Now, those two me methods uh, can give vastly different answers, especially if you calculate over a very long time. Why? Because your discount rate is higher than inflation. So if you apply the cap in the future, it has less of an effect than if you apply your cap in the present after you apply the discount rate. So typically, um, and the two, two main methods that emerge there, the one would definitely, well not definitely, but in most cases, uh, favor the, the plaintiff, and the, and the other one would plaintiff favor the, um, the defendant. And as an actuary, you know, looking in, and I, when I started in this uh, field of work, I, I came in without any baggage, so I, um, I, I saw the, the two methods that were being used, and I didn't have a particular, um, I didn't favor anyone in particular, to be honest, because both had their merits. And so now you have to decide which one you're going to use, but they have different answers. Now, I'd like to think that as actuaries, we, we followed our conviction and, and used the method that gave the answer we truly believe is the right one and we're willing to defend in court. But the fact is there, there's a lot of ambiguity there, and you could argue either method. Now, if one method is going to favor your client over the other method, how objective are you truly? And that is, that is not something I can answer, that's something that each actuary has to answer for themselves. Uh, just to complete the picture, this, uh, this specific issue went to, to the High Court and, and went all the way to the High Court of Appeals in, uh, in Bloemfontein, where the court eventually decided uh, on a certain method. And once the court has uh, ruled in favor of a certain method of the calculation, then we are bound by common law. To, to do that way. So that issue has been resolved, but when we dealt with it, it was quite an interesting one. Thanks, Willem. Uh, maybe just to come back to Francois' question, um, what would not be appropriate is to do, for one uh, firm to do the calculations based on the one methodology for the plaintiff and for the, on the different methodology for, for the defendant, depending on who it favors. Mm -hmm. um, yes, there was a dispute in, in, in relation to which method was correct. But once you feel that a method is, is correct, you must apply it um, consistently whether you're uh, acting for the defendant or the plaintiff. And that goes for any, any method methodology. Um, yeah. Choose your basis or your, 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 your methodology. 
Because, I mean, we definitely saw that that's happening. So, I mean, I'm just wondering if you would think it's unprofessional to do it. Yes, I, I think what you might refer to is that the panel attorneys for the road accident fund was instructed by the road accident fund to use a certain method. Um, and that, that is an interesting issue. Now, what it was based on is, is two things. It was a previous judgment called Janoski. And in this specific instance, the Janoski judgment implied that the one method is correct. But then there was the other judgment called Sweatman, which favored the other way of calculation. So you actually had two conflicting judgments. Now, Sweatman uh, was appealed by the fund. And because the fund or the road accident fund recognized that uh, the method is, is not fixed by law before they actually went through the entire court's process, you know, actuaries could use one or the other. In terms of the road accident fund instructing the actuary uh, which method to use, that does create an interesting dilemma. I think for us, having been involved there, we favored the method that they instructed us to use in any case, so far as there was no conflict. If there was another actuary on the panel that did favor the other method, but abided by the road accident fund's instruction, I, I'm sure I'd like to hear how they resolve that dilemma for themselves. Just a Quick comment, Francois. I, I think there is a danger of being unprofessional if you do use two different methods. And I think one way to potentially resolve it, you know, we've got the damages committee now. So one way would be to approach the committee, maybe a research area or something, and say, well, there's two methods, you know, is there a specific way to do it uh, that would be better? But to, to judge between the two based on the results that you get, I think, would be, would be unprofessional. Okay, thanks, panel. Over to Greg. Um, my, my, my question concerns the current road accident fund tender and as you know in the tender um, there's, there's a section that deals with levels of urgency and one of the levels of urgency is delivering a report within three hours on the date of the trial. We know that that's against the uniform rules of court. If you didn't know, now you know it is against the uniform rules of court. Um, so I just want to understand from actuaries who have tendered um, how they're going to balance their professionalism uh, in the knowledge that they're actually uh, not acting in the interests of the court. And sorry, just to, so I just want to add one thing to that. Uh, what, will, what will practically happen, and, and, and this is also another, uh, I think, ethical uh, dilemma that actuaries will face, is uh, unfortunately in the, in the tender they've actually set a fixed price on, on what... Uh, a report is going to cost, so I'll mention it because it's a public document, 10,000 Rand. So you can conceivably get a report, uh, a request for a report one hour before the trial, do the report, charge 10,000 Rand, uh, taxpayers are going to pay 10,000 Rand, uh, the, the report will get to court, the plaintiff has just merely got to object to the filing of that report and that's money down the drain. Uh, so where are actuaries going to step in uh, with regards to ethics and professionalism? Uh, within the current tender. Okay, that's a difficult one. Uh, Tommy, maybe, and I'd also like to bring in Ayanda to maybe comment on, on the legal aspects. Yeah. No, thanks, thanks, Craig. Um, from our side, you know, we, we can only do, we, we, we actually, so we have to act professionally. So if three hours not enough to do the calculation, tough, you know. Um, what we do, you know, we, we rarely get instructions that, that are that, uh, that's got such a short response time. Normally there's a day at least that you can do, do your work. Um, but if, if it's three hours, you know, we don't 
cut corners to get the job done. You know, we just tell them, sorry, we haven't, we're not finished yet. And it's not a nice, like um, Villa mentioned, if the attorney's screaming at you, but court can stand out for another hour or another two hours or three hours. It's not, it's not the end of the world. I think it's actually we need to get profession, give professional advice and a considered report. Because it's not just a calculation. Um, it's, it's writing down the, the input that you've used, and it can be quite complex. Um, in certain instances, it may be possible, but uh, recalculations obviously a different situation. You know, you just need to change the salary maybe, and you can do it fairly quickly. Um, but I would definitely say that you know, if it's three hours, you're not done. Tough. You know, you have to you have to wait and do a proper job. Yeah, uh, great. Obviously, correct. Obviously, as, a, as an expert, you're about to give evidence. You must give the uh, the court and the other side ten days' notice. Uh, sorry, 15 days notice, and then you must, you must supply your report 10 days uh, before the trial. But I think in that case, I think the practical solution, Greg, will be the guys who have tendered for the tender. Look, obviously, ultimately, the guys who are placed on the panel will conclude the SLA with the fund. I think the fund was trying to demonstrate to the would-be tenderers that there will be instances where you'll be required to prepare a report at an emergency situation. Are you prepared to actually to abide by those rules, so to speak. But I think when it comes to the conclusion of the SLA, I think the actual actually should impress on the fund that that three-hour thing, it might apply to a recalculation term indicator as opposed to the initial report. But I think it's the issue of, of practicalities and negotiation between the parties. But legally speaking, I agree with you. The fact of the matter is it happens on virtually every case that it's been happening over the last three years. And uh, you get the, uh, the, 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 the report the day before the trial or the day of the trial. Yeah. And can I add some perspective there? Um, I'm speaking as myself now, not as Monroe Consulting Actuaries. Um, the, I think there is a line or balance, and we're part of that balance between pragmatism and idealism in this situation. Uh, the fact is that the road accident fund cases uh, is currently 80% of the court role. Um, if a case gets postponed, you likely look at re-hearing anything between six months and a year down the line. That's why government is pushing through the RAP scheme. One is because they consider that the costs involved in this whole litigation process is excessive. 25% of the RAFs uh, total payout goes to professionals and the costs involved. And, and frankly, it's a legal game, often, not always, but it is a legal game. The actuarial report becomes a tool in that legal game. We often do five, six actuarial reports for one case. Why? Because the attorneys are now negotiating. And they often stand right outside the court doors negotiating, trying to come to settlement to avoid that case going to court. Within that perspective, that's often where we get this sort of urgent phone call an hour before the time, saying, guys, can you redo the calculation? Because we want to see how our calculation, if we change this, that, and the other, compares to the other actuaries. It certainly is a tightrope you're walking there from a professional perspective. And we judge that on a case-by-case -case basis to say, guys, can we reasonably do a calculation that we're willing to defend in court in an hour's time? And often it's a, a fine-tuning issue. It's often just change uh, age year or a level of income there, and it, it's very quick to do it, and, and you can do it without any issues. But there are certain complex calculations that you really need time to do a calculation properly. Um, I know it's not a direct answer to Greg's question. I think what we've learned in our, in our uh, interactions with the fund is that they also, they're just trying to get the job done. It's a social service. Yeah, everybody that fills their the car with petrol, they pay the money. And, and they're trying to compensate people 
you know, for having suffered real losses. And often that compensation happens three, four, five years down the line. And they have people who lost their jobs, who lost their incomes. You know, it's very hardcore, underground, gritty stuff that happens there. And, and in that balance and in that tension of idealism versus pra pragmatism, I think we as actuaries just need to be cognizant of the fact that we can't be so idealistic that we start to trip up the system and we kill the whole purpose of the system, which is to give somebody the right compensation for a loss that they suffered in terms of a social service. And we know this is not an exact science. I think we need to apply some common sense and some good judgment there. Okay, thank you. Um, we've got about a minute or two left, so probably time for one more question. Okay, if it's short, maybe two. Okay, Vili and Talita. So I'll ask you, I will ask you two questions. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to know, say for example, you've got the accuracy in short four subjects to uh, qualification, is put out of work. How do you estimate the, the future cash flows? And the next question, have you, have your cash flows, do you use one single discount rate to do the uh, cash flow, the discounted value? Because my income will cover my uh, cost of living, but part of it will be saved for retirement. So my view is it is different calculations. Okay, maybe give this one to Tommy. Um, well, I just want to make sure that I got you correctly. You say, um, how do you discount your future income um, together with the social, uh, like a old age pension, or what? I don't know what you qualify for in your. I'm asking whether you do once discount rate for your total uh, income stream, or do you split okay. your income stream and say part will cover my cost of living, which is a different discount rate? Yeah than saving for retirement. Oh, okay, that, that's fine. If, if, um, so this is asking if you've, you've got a one um, income stream that's dependent on salary increases, which is often higher than inflation, we all hope so, and the other one is just due to uh, linked to price inflation. Uh, yeah, you would use two, two discount rates. Good example there is medical, um, medical calculations where there's a, a medical negligence claim, for example. Some, we, you can have three discount rates. One where there's, say, salaries, of medical um, nurses, so and say so nurse has to give some care, then you'd use a discount rates relating to salary. So you'd have a um, um, say use inflation plus one for salary assumption, use that versus your your assumed investment return. Um, if you've got uh, uh, just med tools stuff, you've got to build something, a ramp at the house, that'll be just price inflation. And if there's medical stuff involved with a medical uh, inflation rate that may be higher than salaries, that's the third one. So, yeah. Okay, maybe last quick one from Talita. Two questions. <laughs> the first one to Willem and Tommy. Um, what is your opinion on joint minutes between actuaries? A, does it add value? And B, can a client, irrespective of whether it's the RAF or, or an attorney, instruct the actuary not to do joint minutes and therefore saying you can't put a signature on a piece of paper while he needs to act as an independent witness? And my second question is to Ayanda. You mentioned that you prepared two reports for the court. Will you just explain that a bit and whether it's based on two set of actuarial results or what, what did you mean by that? Let me just start with my question. Um, when, when we, as I said, this is like our um, firm strategy. You know, I mean, sometimes it depends on the facts of the matter. So we'll prepare a report that's 
actually, when I say settlement, that report will be so biased that actually that it won't stand at court. So that report will be, pre will be prepared actually as a case to negotiate. So starting at a low base, obviously negotiating on the other side. So the second report, that's the one actually that is based on legal principle, is factually, technically sound, and then that report will go to court. So the first report won't go to court, won't file it. It will be, it will be shared between us and the other side purely for, for negotiation purposes, but the other the report would be filed at court. There's nothing wrong with it. Ethical is correct. We can do something like that. Um, I, in, in my experience, the most useful thing about joint minutes is to get to know the actuary on the other side. Um, now, I do certainly think these are useful joint minutes, but in my experience, again, which is limited, I found that the joint minutes is normally simply highlights that the biggest difference between two actuarial reports is different inputs that get given to the actuaries. Uh, we it get some minute differences between discount rates um, and maybe different mortality tables used, but there's nothing significant there. And I think in terms of this process of negotiation, I am so right in saying, uh, you know, often you get the sense that an attorney sets his mind on a certain number, he's going to get his client, and now he starts to work the system to arrive at that number. So in terms of a, a joint minute, um, we, we often find, and, that, and the attorneys find that the actuaries, they can't influence the discount rate we use, they can't influence the method of the calculation, they can't influence the mortality tables we use or other actuarially specific inputs. So the only thing they can manipulate is the actual inputs in terms of the uncertain elements in this case, either loss of income or loss of support or damages or whatever the case may be. Uh, in terms of not putting your signature on a, on a joint minute, personally, I wouldn't do that. But sometimes I get the sense that the attorneys simply want to understand why are the two actual reports different. And more often than not, we highlight the fact that we, we get different inputs. No, I agree with what William said. That I think the one thing that we could try and work together more is instead of doing a joint minute just stating that I used a salary of 10,000 and my other actually used a salary of 20,000, we can maybe just dial out to them verbally and say this is the we've got the same result, just the inputs that are different, please get the industrials to give us one answer and we'll give you one result. That will take away the need for that. Um, so yeah. Sorry, sorry, yeah, like it depends on, on different division. In the north and south Houting, a matter cannot be allocated to a judge without joint minutes. But sometimes some judges will waive the absence of joint minutes from actuaries because they are seen as the end of the game as opposed to the initial experts. Yeah. So it depends on a case to case basis. Okay, I'd like to close the discussion there and thank the panel for a very interesting discussion, also the audience for uh, engaging. Uh, the panel will be available for maybe five more minutes afterwards if any of you want to approach them and ask further questions. Thank you.